Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Welcome to another edition of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm really pleased to have my friend and colleague, Richard Fontaine, who's the president and CEO of the Center for the New American Security, CNAS, is better known. He has just published a really interesting article in the Atlantic Monthly called, We Need an Atlantic Charter for the Post-Coronavirus Era. So I was quite taken with it. There's been a great interest around Washington about this piece that Richard Fontaine published in the Atlantic. Richard, thanks for being on my podcast. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you remotely and be on virtually. Right, exactly. I mean, this whole COVID thing has has put a wrench in all sorts of works, including even doing a podcast. We have to do it virtually. You know, I'd heard about the Atlantic Charter and I knew about the meeting, but I didn't realize how significant that meeting was. Could you talk about what was the Atlantic Charter and why was it important? Sure. Well, it started in... August of 1941, Franklin Roosevelt went up to Canada by ship, and he was on a ship off the coast of Newfoundland, and Winston Churchill sailed over from England, and he met him there, and Churchill came aboard, and they spent about a good day, day and a half, talking about the future of the post-war environment, what to do after the Nazi tyranny was defeated, what kind of institutions and should take place, what kind of principles should underline the future that they wanted to bring about. And they issued the Atlantic Charter, which was a set of eight principles that basically said, we're going to defeat the Nazis. And after that takes place, this is the new world that we're going to create. And the principles that were embedded in there, they're fairly broad and abstract, but that was the sort of root of the so-called post-war international order, the GATT, the UN, uh, NATO, things like that. And the most striking thing about it, at least to me, was the fact that the United States wasn't even at war in August of 1941. Pearl Harbor was still four months off. And so what it meant was that the post-war planning began before the United States even entered World War II. And they already started to think about what kind of world we would like to see come out of the other side of World War II so they would never have to repeat what happened before it. So you talk about in your piece, it says that What we need is the mindset that the Atlantic Charter represented. What do you mean by that? What I really mean is that we need to be thinking now about what kind of world we want to see emerge after coronavirus. We don't know how disruptive this is going to be. And of course, you know, working on foreign policy, everyone always says we're an inflection point. We're always at an inflection point. But actually right now, I think we might actually be at an inflection point. Because if you imagine any issue, U.S.-China relations, U.S. troops in the Middle East, the role of international institutions, cooperation or lack thereof, any issue you want to think about, the role of government in the economy, it's all being affected quite significantly now by this pandemic. Some of those effects are going to be unwound once we get through this, but some will not be. And so it really does provide the kind of quintessential opportunity in crisis to think about what do we want the world to look like after this pandemic shakes things up so dramatically and after the global trauma passes. And what are the kind of steps that we should be taking now in order to shape 
the future that we would like to see unfold afterwards. That's kind of the Atlantic Charter mindset, which is this version of post-war planning. Here it's post-pandemic planning so that we can get closer to the world we want and further from the one we don't. So you talk about some of the principles if you were planning based on the mindset of the Atlantic Charter, you had several principles. I'd like you to just go through them a little bit in detail because I think they're good ones. All people share in the economic benefits of globalization. So, okay, I'm buying that. But what prompts you to say that? What prompts me to say that is if you look at the politics, at least since the global financial crisis, in many democracies around the world. I think- Including this one. Yeah, exactly. I think underlying that is this notion that there's a big segment of the population that has essentially been screwed by globalization, that trade and trade agreements kill their jobs, that immigrants or migrants steal their jobs and hurt their culture, that it benefits only an elite and not everyone else. You know, and you can go on and on and on. And, you know, even the wars that people will say is part and parcel of sort of upholding this globalized order and things like that. What have we gotten out of those? And so you step back from it and where, you know, 15, 20 years ago, you had politicians saying we've got to have a globalized world and reap the benefits and, and economic growth and more prosperity and health and all these things. Now you have most politicians who are being elected are offering ways to protect parts of the population from the effects of globalization. So it's clear that the social contract there is pretty broken. There's a lot of people in the United States and elsewhere who think globalization is not good for them. And I don't think the answer is to kill globalization. I think the answer is to, is actually a lot harder in a way, which is to find ways that it can benefit a much greater proportion of the population in the, in the big democracies. You also talked about that democracies remain free of foreign political interference. I don't think you just mean Russia, but talk a little bit about Russia, and but also I'm assuming other actors as well. Yeah, well, Russia is the poster child here because of its interference in the 2016 presidential election and its continued interference till this very day. But it's not the only one. You see China getting more and more active in the game of political interference, both through online and other means. And then there are other actors like, you know, Iran and North Korea that like to play their game. And the playbook is out there, not again, not just for the United States, but for other democracies, too, that if you want to weaken these countries so they are less a threat to perceived threat to Russia or China or whatever, you dial up the divisiveness because a house divided is less able to project power. I mean, that's pretty obvious. And, you know, there are lots of ways to be able to do that. And so that is something I actually see that as a top national security threat to the United States is is foreign interference in our already divided political system that seeks to undermine our institutions, our democratic practices. And I think that the democracies have to work together much, much more actively than they have. I mean, we, we work together great to talk about what would happen if Russia invaded Estonia with a tank column. We don't talk to each other nearly as much and have nearly as much of a playbook as to what to do, not about that theoretical threat, but about the very real threat that's happening every day, which is Russian or other interference in our political system. I totally agree. Okay, how about the country's work in common cause against shared threats, pandemics, terrorism, and climate change? So collective action against transnational threats. Yeah, and of course, this is, it's difficult as we see right now. I mean, there has been really no collective response to the pandemic. And those of us who do foreign policy, like you and me, 
you know, you sort of step back and say, well, take the United States and China. It's understandable we compete on military matters, on technology matters, on economic matters to some degree, things like that. What's the thing that would sort of induce some cooperation? Well, I don't know, you know, an asteroid hitting the Earth and we'd all have to come together, right? Well, a pandemic is kind of like that in a way. No one has an interest in this spreading. We all have an interest in this diminishing. And yet it's become one more vector for competition rather than a means of cooperation. And not just between the United States and China, but also, you know, and it's not just Trump's America first attitude either. I mean, that's part of it, but that's not the whole story. I mean, you look at the Europeans and the French and the Germans who immediately ban the export of medical equipment from their countries, even due to their neighbors who they're in a common market with. So we have to think about ways to actually generate some of the will to cooperate against these things, because I think pandemic is a good example of it just not going to be solved once and for all on a national basis. It, it doesn't seem like I agree with you. It doesn't seem like we've had a lot. Of, and you've talked about this in your piece that there hasn't been a lot of significant collective action against the pandemic. No, I mean, you know, the the G7 got together and issued a statement pledging broad, abstract cooperation. G20 did more or less the same thing. I looked at those documents there was not a single specific time-bound commitment to say, by X date, we will do Y. There just was nothing. And a cynic would say, well, it's always that way. But in fact, it's not. I mean, if you look after 9-11, for example, the Bush administration used the G8 uh, very effectively to do things that still resonate today, you know, reinforce cockpit doors and passenger manifests on airlines and all those things. And of course, PEPFAR and, and, and things like that were all coordinated through stuff like that. After the global financial crisis, the Obama administration used a G20 and they pledged specific financial stimulus and things like that. So this can be done. It needs to be done, but it's not being done. So the next point you have is that the U.S. and allies seek to prevail in a long term competition with China and Russia. I agree with that. Are you optimistic about our ability to prevail in the long run against China and Russia? I am. Yeah, I think the United States has everything that we need to prevail. And by prevail, I mean, essentially preserve a world that is conducive to the liberal democratic way of life, the one that we enjoy that sometimes we take for granted, but that is so important to the American identity and, and way of life and that of our, our democratic friends and allies and resist this, the encroachment of illiberalism and, and other influences that come out of Russia and China. That takes a, I think that will mean a long-term period of pretty active competition with both of those countries, especially with China. But, you know, I look around and I look at, you know, all of the strengths that America has from its alliances to its economy, to its ability to recreate itself, to its ingenuity, to its military, to its bases, to whatever. And we have all the components we need, but what we need to do is to assemble those in the right way and have the will to see this competition all the way through to the end. And that's the part, it's actually more than anything, it's it's the sort of overall direction and the politics of this that I think are the weak spot for us. Yeah, I'd rather be us than them is sort of how I, I look at it. I mean, I certainly think about Russia and I think your former boss, John McCain, used to talk about them being potentially a gas station for the Chinese is how he described yeah. Russia. But I don't think they make a lot of stuff other than oil and gas and they've got a, their demography is terrible. And so I also got to wonder what $20 a barrel oil means for the Russian economy and what it means for their ability to project power. I'm sure this is going to take a real whack to Putin. And for China, 
The thing I'm watching is it, it just seems to me if we can avoid a full-on Cold War and a full-on hot war with the Chinese for the next 20 years, there's going to be something like a tripling of people over the age of 60 in China, and they're going to have to choose between Medicare or guns at some point. They don't have a social safety net. The traditional social contract was sort of torn up about 20 or 30 years ago. Massive amounts of urbanization and people leaving villages, one-child policy, sex-selective abortion has led it to, I think they're below, way below replacement level and have been for about 20 years, and that's about to kick in in a really heavy way. And so I just think that they're going to have the demographic dynamism of Portugal or Italy in about 20 years. And so I think if we can just avoid getting into a fight, I think 20 or 25 years from now, I, I think we're in a better, we're in a much better place with these folks. No, it's a good point. And even beyond the where does their power go, part of this is how do you wield the power you've got, right? And there's been this kind of thought experiment over recent years, like, you know, what would a, what would a China-led world as opposed to a U.S.-led world? I mean, only some parts of it are U.S.-led, really. But, but what would it look like, right? And, and if the United States steps back, would China sort of step in anything more than kind of rhetorically? And actually, I think we see a little bit of an experiment during the present pandemic because China's in the G20. China could organize collective action, but it hasn't organized anything. I mean, it's it's thin-skinned and it, and it wants to buff its its reputation and it's made some aid available and things like that. It's but made, it has, is it like flawed aid available, like broken ventilators and crappy masks and things? Well, and even the, the stuff that, you know, I'm sure countries are genuinely grateful for, it's not about organizing collective action. It's about building some goodwill toward China so that it can kind of recast the narrative of, you know, well, this started in China and they covered it up and they, you know, and things like that. And so, you know, the answer, at least right now, to if the United States steps back from setting the agenda and bringing other countries along in some sort of collective action against some sort of collective problem, does China do it? No, the answer is no. The answer is nobody does it. Not the Europeans as much as they'd like to, not the Chinese that just don't have the appetite to do it. Maybe in the future, the Chinese will step into that role. But but it's interesting now, even with all of the the power they've accrued over the past um, the past you know few years, they don't seem at all ready or interested in playing a role like that. No, I think it's very true. I also think what I've said in various pieces is our ability to respond to things like Ebola in 2013 or this gives us the social license to operate as a hegemon that in some ways this is our, these are part of the condo fees of global leadership. We want to be a hegemon or kind of have moral leadership. We got to answer the mail on stuff like this. And to the extent that we're not seen right now as fully and actively answering the mail, at least trying to, is not smart because it does open the, the window for other folks to attempt to try and do this. I agree with you. I don't think China has it in it to do it. But the, even the fact that they're even trying is is risky for us. It's not a good thing. And I think we should be asking ourselves, Are we? Are, what happens if they succeed? Are we going to yeah. be happy if they end up actually solving, if they end up are seen as being the salt resolver of this problem? What I've said to ambassadors, American ambassadors, and leaders in, in the American government has been your job over the next six to 12 months is to be seen as helping resolve other countries' COVID problem. It's going to be your most important thing in your job. And so now I do hear that there's, but you know, the next bill that's COVID response bill, there's going to be a chunk of money for foreign assistance. I think that's smart. The US Congress, or I think a Republican led Congress, spent $5 billion 
2013, maybe it wasn't a Republican, yeah, it was a Republican-led Congress to respond to Ebola. And so I overseas. And so I think, you know, I think we're going to see multiples of that to respond to this. But I think if we are not seen as doing this, we open the door for them to play this game. I do believe it's a social license to operate as a hegemon. It's, it's just one of the condo fees for us to be a global power. I've never heard this condo fee term, but I, but I do I do like that. That's got a rundy uh, with TM TM circled uh, <laughs> after that, which uh, which I think is is pretty cool. Um, you know, but of course, the flip side of this, though, actually gets back to this first point about, you know, sharing in the benefits of globalization, because, of course, it's not just Donald Trump who was not a fan of, of foreign aid and says, yeah. you know, we get screwed by the allies even more than than our enemies, which I think he said yesterday. But it was Obama talked about nation building at home and rather than nation building abroad. I mean, there is this general sense of, well, wait, ha- hold on a minute, guys. Why are we spending all this treasure, if not blood and treasure, outside our borders? And what are we actually getting for it? And so COVID should be more obvious because if it races through South Asia or Sub-Saharan Africa while it's been beat out in the United States, then it's not going to be beat out in the United States for very long, right? But this broader set of issues, the kind of soft power stuff you work on, articulating this self-interested national interest case for this, it's got to be on the agenda in a way that's actually true, right? That, that that Americans can say, oh yeah, we do this because it's in our enlightened self-interest to do it. And part of the answer may be China and there may be other answers too. Without outing some of my close relatives, not my spouse, <laughs> some of them think this is all money down a rat hole. And so I have interesting Thanksgiving dinners. But my view is we've always, from the Marshall Plan onwards, our foreign aid programs have been out of enlightened self-interest. There's always been right. a strategic component to them. Right. And that's the same now. And we have interests. And I think we don't think about, we're sort of fish in water and have operated under the liberal international order. I know that's like a word salad that, you know, only folks like people like us at think tanks use comfortably. But there hasn't been a great power war in 70 years. I mean, think about what a cataclysm World War One was or World War Two. The reason we set up all this stuff was they said, we don't want another war. We don't want another one of these again. It was so horrific and so horrible. Just trust us, future generations. You don't want this. The suffering and sacrifice was so miserable and so awful. So I know the American people are tired, but we've gotten a lot of benefits. Having a, having a global standard of the dollar, having English as, a, as the lingua franca, using British or American law as sort of the basically the gold standard for rule of law, increasing human freedom around the world. I mean, if you look at the Freedom House indicators in the last 40 years, there's a lot more free countries than not because of us chip, you know, some of us had to do with us chipping away. The world's richer, freer, healthier, more capable with a lot more agency. A lot of that was having a stable liberal international order for all this stuff to happen. Now, we also played a role. The international institutions played a role. And it's, it's hard to put that on a bumper sticker. But all that stuff has been great but there's also there's been some downsides or people are looking for folks to blame. And some people, especially after, say, two wars where people are tired or a financial crisis or then after, on top of this, there's also that you talk about this in another piece you just did in, in foreign policy about COVID. We're now experiencing, OK, there's some downsides or some there's some not so great stuff to globalization. We need to make the case about why net net it's still better than the alternatives. Right. I totally agree with you. 
You know, the first of arguments that you made, I agree with completely. I think it's true, but it's pretty damn hard to prove because we haven't run the experiment where the United States wasn't doing any of these things for decades and we saw how bad it was and then we turned. And, you know, I mean, there could be other reasons that we haven't had a great power war other than the order and all these other things. We just can't prove it, right? But I think there's it's at least suggestive that we've been far better off when we've done these things than when we haven't. And then, as you're saying, it all gets back to what are the set of available alternatives? And as we're seeing today, the alternatives to the United States even setting the agenda internationally and corralling countries together in common cause is either no one doing it or potentially down the road China doing it. And I'd prefer the first the options two or three. Even the most, the strongest isolationist or the strongest person who is, let's call it internationalist skeptic, when I present them with the alternative, like, are you good with China doing X? Are you good with China running running the World Bank? Are you good with China running the IMF? Are you good with China having a, the run of the Eurasian landmass through the Belt and Road Initiative? Are you good with China sticking a giant straw into Africa and having a neo-colonialist relationship and not offering some kind of a more partnership alternative to our friends and allies in Africa and elsewhere. No one ever says to me, yeah, I'm really good with that. That would be great. That sounds awesome. No one ever says that to me. I think you're right. I mean, I think we have to be a little bit more explicit about like, that's the alternative. A China-led world means a world of a lot more corruption, basically operating on kind of like low level and grand corruption all the time. Doesn't mean we're perfect as a, the West. We've got lots of problems. It probably means some funny stuff with sex-selective abortion. They continue to do that stuff. Some kind of funniness about how many kids you want to have and getting into people's personal lives. Some stuff's about getting a permission slip for moving from the equivalent of, say, Loudoun County to D.C., one of those, the HUKU system, right? You know, an internal passport. Some kind of okayness about having a social credit system for whether you're a good person or not based on whether you're following the reigning political party or regime in whatever country. A high degree of acceptance of unsafe water, unsafe food, and unsafe air, and um, very weak property rights. So if you're good with that, then you'll love a world led by China because that's what they're going to be exporting. You do have to, to connect this all to the relatively significant percentage of the population that looks at not the China part specifically, but again, looks at globalization and says, hey, wait a minute. Okay, you know, we disproportionately lose our jobs to the erosion of the manufacturing base in our population. We disproportionately believe our jobs are being taken by illegal immigrants. We disproportionately feel the effects of our rural communities, say, being culturally shifted by the influx of migrants, right? We disproportionately send our sons and daughters to fight in the wars that, that those in Washington keep dreaming up. And year after year, things don't look like they're getting a whole lot better for us, but it sure looks like the elite is doing better and better no matter what happens, right? And that's a caricature, but it's not a caricature without some truth in it. You know, I guess I'm still focused on this first principle that we were talking about, but, you know, building a globalization that's not an isolationist thing that's going to impoverish and hurt everybody, but rather is a globalization that's politically sustainable and in which more people benefit ain't easy. And there are various ways of thinking about how you would do something like that. But to me, that's kind of one of the big political projects of our time. I wish it was being dealt with a little more explicitly. Yeah, I think it's something we should follow up on and have a, a longer conversation about. Okay, I had a couple more questions. 
So if we were going to have an Atlantic charter today, who would we invite to the cocktail party? Only Americans for now. When I say an Atlantic charter, Atlantic charter mindset. Yeah, yeah. If we're going to we're gonna invite someone to a, a, to a neo-Atlantic charter or a cocktail party in the spirit of the Atlantic charter, who would we invite? People from the, the Trump administration, those who wish to replace them in the Joe Biden camp and members of Congress. How about, I, but how about th- our allies? Who would you have? Let's assume. Well, we could- yeah, ultimately, I think this process has to start with us first and foremost, rather than the stark uh, example. Like, I, I don't think you start with getting Donald Trump and Boris Johnson in a ship off of Newfoundland and then they come out with principles and then everything sort of magically flows from that. I mean, the Atlantic Charter. It's an analogy, but it's only an analogy. You can't take it quite too far, yeah, right? Yeah. So, but, you know, if you look around the world at our, our strongest allies, certainly Japan and South Korea and our European allies and uh, Australia. Yeah. Would you invite Taiwan? Yeah, yeah. I would invite Taiwan. If we're putting together, you know, the the metaphorical party here, I'd even like to see if, you know, India wouldn't just kind of stand in the corner and want to be non-aligned in the corner. Right. Now, not as not to build an alliance, but again, to talk about what are the principles and what are the actions that can shape a world. Now, we don't agree 100% with any of these countries. We never will. But we agree a hell of a lot more on certain issues than we will with the countries that want to undermine or build a different kind of world than the one we're seeking. I remain optimistic that we can get all of the American political class. I think in the Republican Party and in the Trump administration, it's certainly if you want to move the Trump administration in what I would describe as a conservative internationalist way. And I can think of a dozen examples of this. and I think you can, too. The question put before them is, are you good with China leading right. X or Y. And so that has been the Trump argument, if I can excuse my, my, you know, yeah. it's the Trumping argument has been the China card. And so I think if you look at the multilateral organizations, we've done a lot of work on some of these really obscure but really important multilateral organizations like the World Intellectual Property Organization, WIPO. We did a lot of work on that to help support the administration and its campaign to win, to prevail in a very contested election for the future leadership of the World Intellectual Property Organization. What the heck is that? Super obscure. You can go read a couple of pieces I've written about why it's important, but there's dozens and dozens of these things. These organizations set standards, they keep secrets, they influence, they've got a lot of influence and a lot of power and sometimes money. And so I think the Trump administration has woken up to the fact that these institutions matter and I think sometimes in the Republican Party, we our first intuition is say, oh, these things are stupid. These things are marginal. They don't really do that much. Or if they do, they always kind of do woolly headed stuff or stuff that's kind of slightly against our sovereignty or in the multilateral development banks. We don't I don't you know they're bailing out people and we don't like that. But I think if you take a strategic competition lens to these institutions, which perhaps is how we might have looked at them during the Cold War. I think there's going to be a lot more interest in the multilateral institutions than even two or three years ago because of sort of this. I also think COVID, I think, is a wake up call that we can choose. Do we want to? I think all your points in your piece uh, is what's prompted me to reach out to you is I just I totally agree. I hope and believe that we can get enough political will and enough of a consensus to go in the directions of the principles that you put down in this article in The Atlantic. It was really, really a really nice piece. Well, let me ask you a question. If I, can I turn the yes, tables of for course. just a second? Well, I agree with what you just laid out. And one of the things that strikes me, I am 
not I'm old, but I'm not so old that I was like, you know, trained on nuclear throw weights in school and during Cold War stuff. I was, Richard, you know, I was it was opposed- a simpler time. It was a yeah, simpler well, time, yeah, exactly. Richard. <laughs> but there were things that in the course of my career really weren't much of an issue that I dealt a lot with, like technical standards in multilateral standard setting bodies, bilateral lending standards. You know, for stuff like One Belt, One Road, yeah, and, the World and, Bank, and, you know, vis-a-vis World the World Bank, Bank environmental or standards, these kinds of technical, the, the actual content of technical assistance. One time, somebody told me the two most boring words in the English language were technical assistance. Right? I mean, this is not the kind of stuff of of high politics no. that 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 often really gets the national security and foreign policy crowd going. It's it, that's the stuff like you know, are we going to? kill Suleimani and what's the effect going to be or or, you know, the, the Iran nuclear deal and, and you know, how are we going to how are we going to take possession of fissile material or, or right. you know, whatever, th- those kind of things. But there's a strong argument now for the real action and actually the fulcrum around what a lot of international influence is being built is around these much more technical standards related issues in multilateral forum, bilateral stuff, all that. And it just it's not clear to me, and my question is, what do you see here? Because it's not clear to me that that realization has seeped into, I think it seeped into the next generation in foreign policy folks, but I don't think it's seeped into the, the big foreign policy crowd quite yet. Thank you for asking that. That's a great question. And I've been writing, scribbling away in obscurity on some of this stuff because some of it has put you to sleep stuff, but it's, it, it's the kind of thing VHS versus beta. We want to be globally in line with the principles you like, I want to be the United States and the West to be a standard maker, right. not a standard taker. And we're not going to like it when we're a standard taker. We ain't going to like it. But we, we for, for decades, have been a standard maker and we've gotten used to it. Just like saying it's like a fish in water. We, you know, the American dollar is the standard. English is a lingua franca. In the last 50 years, the language of technology, the language of business – I think if you want to do any kind of international legal agreement, it's English. And so if you want to escape the middle income country trap, you want to fundamentally transform your economy. So like Ukraine, for example, wants to get a divorce from Russia, having my several visits to Ukraine, then they got to learn to speak English better. They rank countries by their quality of English. Now, this is the kind of thing you're not supposed to kind of say because it's politically incorrect. But like if you want to be a real country today, if you want to be a escape the middle income country, you have to be able to speak excellent English. Brazil is in the same category. If you want to fundamentally transform the economy of Brazil, it has to have a stronger base of English. So if you're an Anglophone country, that really helps. You've seen a couple examples in Africa of Francophone countries changing to Anglophone just because of this. Rwanda did this. I think Cameroon did the same thing. So English as one standard. Okay, some other standards. So absolutely, there's a series of multilateral organizations that set different kinds of standards. The World Bank, for example, is the de facto standard maker on procurement. When you get a loan from the World Bank Mm -hmm. in many developing countries, it comes with a book. They say, here's your rule book for procurement. When you go buy stuff with this World Bank loan, use this rule set. So for 70 years, what we told developing country were, Eat your low bid vegetables. What do we mean by that? Always use the lowest bid. So low bid on, right, low bid on the iPhone, low bid on the car, low bid on the the paper clips. Well, 15 years ago, Richard, guess what started to happen? 
the, the lowest bidder happened to be China every darn time we'd show up. Now, sometimes there was a bribe. Sometimes there was some funny business in terms of state uh, subsidies and some funny business. So 10 years ago, the Obama administration, to their credit, said, we got to go into the World Bank rule book and change the rule book to say you can buy stuff on the low bid, but you could also do something called life cycle cost. Well, what's life cycle cost? Life cycle cost is if I go and buy a light bulb for my lamp, the $2 one that lasts me three weeks, or I can buy a $20 light bulb that lasts me, I don't know, four years, right? So over the life of the thing, the more expensive light bulb is the better deal. You know, so it has all sorts of implications of someone's got to train you know, hundreds of thousands of procurement officials to some slightly more complex standard than just low bid. But the point is like something like procurement standards is something the World Bank has an important role to play. So in terms of other things, if I think about the OECD, okay, so what is the heck is the OECD? The OECD is sort of the club of real countries. It's the club of 36 countries of democracies and rich countries or upper middle income countries. It's got a powerful carrot. Countries who are not yet there want to join. It's kind of like wanting to join the Metropolitan Club of Countries. Colombia, I was a big advocate of Colombia joining the OECD. For Colombia to join the OECD, there was like, there's like 17 or 18 different committees. So they had to kind of pass muster on 18 different things, something on taxes, something on corruption, something on technology. And so all the 36 had to kind of vote on them saying, yeah, it's okay for Colombia to join. So it had a huge incentive. So it's the, the President Santos of Colombia called it the Club of Buenas Practices, the Club of Good Practices. So you could argue that the OECD is an inherent standard-setting body. What we want is countries operating off of OECD standards, and they have these really important, powerful committees. In foreign aid, they have the Major League Baseball Commission called the DAC, the Development Assistance Committee, and that says, okay, if you spend money on French, if the French spend money on French lessons through Alliance Francaise in, I don't know, in India, that counts as foreign aid for France. So they came up with some, you know, some of this stuff is a little bit dicey. So there's absolutely this issues of standards. Ultimately, what we want to be is a standard maker, not a standard taker. There's absolutely a lot of action in this. I think it requires, Richard, in my mind, we have to pay attention the Chinese have gotten far, far better in the last 10 years at running campaigns, putting forward excellent and very qualified candidates. Of the 15 most important specialized UN agencies, they are leading four of them, and they almost were leading five of them So uh, with WIPO. So I give them credit. Some of them we don't care about. They run UNIDO. We don't care about it. They care about UNIDO because it's like a manufacturing, you know, and so you could say, well, we don't like that. Or the FAO, they run FAO. We have to pay attention to these things. We have to put more time into the multilateral system because they are a force, in my view, to the extent we lead on them, they are a force multiplier of a Western form of globalization. To the extent we don't lead them, other forces can come in and they can they can change the DNA and this change the strategic direction of them. So you push the right button by asking me that question. Sorry. Thank you for asking that question. No, we're taking you right out of the undecided category. Uh, take me right out of the undecided category, exactly. So again, I want everyone to go out and read uh, Richard Fontaine's Atlantic monthly piece called We Need an Atlantic Charter for the Post-Coronavirus Era. I really liked it. It just came out last week. It's caused a buzz in Washington. Thank you, Richard, for being on today. This is great.
Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 